Hello, this is Jacob. You're listening to part five of Strive On. Thanks for tuning in. I don't remember exactly when I watched it. I'm guessing late January or early February. I'd watched a lot of professional and amateur videos on YouTube about everything from PTSD and depression to religions and spirituality, even topics such as psychedelic drugs. I stumbled across a PBS documentary about Buddha, narrated by Richard Gere. I must have watched it three times that week. It didn't change me, per se, but Buddha's final words resonated with me, and they still do. Before I share those words, I want to emphasize, as I've said, Buddhism is only a religion if you want it to be. For others, it is simply a philosophy, a perspective. And that's how I've always kept Buddhism, as a brilliant philosophy, but nothing more. No worship of Buddha or veneration of bodhisattvas. No referring to the Dalai Lama as His Holiness. It's a simple philosophy that deals with one thing, suffering. I guess that's why that documentary appealed to me at that time. If I had one thing in life, it was suffering. Buddha's supposed dying words. Drive on, untiringly, towards your liberation. I'll divulge my analysis of that quote later. It's 10.37 a.m. and I ought to sleep even though I'm not tired. A final thought before I put a pause on this. I fully realize it's beyond an anomaly that I've been freed, and I intend to do everything I can to encourage those still suffering. Only those of us who have experienced this place can truly understand each other. Anything else is just well-intentioned speculation. To my brothers and sisters still trapped in the dark fog, don't listen to the no-cure, only symptom management rhetoric. Don't get complacent and absolutely do not give up to reach out to me personally if you need someone to talk to who understands. Please resist any urges to hurt yourself. I am living proof that your situation is not hopeless, so please don't give up. Note, I'm not saying my path to tranquility will work for everyone. In fact, that is my whole point. Not everything works for everyone. PTSD, depression, and anxiety are not the same for everyone. They vary in severity, and everyone experiences these awful things differently. Yet some professionals, who have never experienced this themselves, treat us all the same. They make you start with therapy, then strongly push you to take medication in conjunction with that therapy. When you inevitably complain about the severe side effects of your new medication, they will force you to endure a trial and error process until you find one that you both agree is a good fit. In my opinion, that method is destructive in more ways than one, and if I ever run into the lady who insisted on drugging me up with new pills every two to three weeks, then 
refusing to reply to my pharmacy for clarification, then writing the prescriptions out sloppily with obvious inconsistencies with dosages on the same paper. If I ever see that piece of shit doctor, I plan to tell her she deserves a fate worse than hell. Someone else less equipped to manage deeply intense mental anguish would have surely resorted to suicide, and that's not okay. Damn, I've gone off topic and worked myself up. Oh well. Karma is real, and that doctor will get it back tenfold. But enough negativity. I ought to rest. Peace and love, my beautiful friends. October 11, 2015, 9.35 p.m. So happy I don't work tonight. It'll be nice to rest. I managed to get about four hours of sleep earlier. Right now, I am watching reruns of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The show never gets old. October 12th. 2015. 1.01 a.m. Earlier, I wanted to give my analysis of the last dying words of Buddha. In my opinion, he was stressing the importance of never giving up on the quest to be free from our own personal suffering. Strive on untiringly means never give up. Towards your liberation, to me means towards your liberation from suffering January pretty much sucked I got laid off from my seasonal job at a brick and mortar media store back to having no real income February was when I got my concussion and was forced not to work though I just started a six week training class at my new job again no income and not allowed to do much of anything Per the doctor's orders. In late March, I was able to go back to work. Anxiety was extremely high. In early April, I had a second job that paid way less than my full-time job. I worked at that minor league baseball stadium. I loved the work. No anxiety, no stress. After a few weeks, the managers thought I was some kind of child or punching bag. This job was usually filled by high school students, 15, 16, 17 year olds. That's fine, no big deal. Then there was me, 25 at the time. Grown man, beard, even some muscles. I only put that in there about my muscles because my boss awkwardly complimented my arms and pecs every time I worked. I didn't belong, still no big deal. Most of the work was unsupervised and consisted of redundant manual labor. We would move furniture back and forth between the VIP suites. The upper managers were much older than I was and began to treat me like one of their 15-year-olds, despite the fact that I was the only one to come in early when they asked for extra help. I was the only one to bust my ass and never complain or drag my feet. And I never showed up late or broke any rules. One day, the head manager emailed all of us little peons 
so, uh, sounding very desperate, begging for people to come to work, even if they weren't scheduled. This was basically going to save the manager's ass, because otherwise she would have to do a tremendous amount of heavy lifting all by herself if no one came in. Guess who came in? Me. And some stoner girl who weighed as much as a twig came later on. Some self-righteous sign language student from RIT, for whatever reason, appointed herself to be our acting supervisor due to the simple fact that she was a seasonal employee who worked there last spring. I, working entirely alone, finished all of my work hours ahead of schedule. They instructed my little supervisor to find more work for me because the manager didn't predict I'd finish everything in 90 minutes. So the little ASL student gave me a long list of busy work to do. It was a bunch of shit that wasn't even close to what I was hired for, but I smiled and I gladly obliged. Halfway through the list, the stoner girl showed up. We decided to split up and finished the entire list in no time. I told her I was getting bored of doing busy work and I was ready to leave. Apparently, she texted our little supervisor that I was interested in leaving. I was soon approached and I was told I wasn't allowed to leave until 12, making a complete four hour shift. And I explained it wasn't a shift. I came in because they begged me to come help out. The help was now complete. She sighed and looked up from her iPhone, clearly annoyed at me that I had the audacity to stand in her presence, pressing the issue. She looked over the list, saw that we crossed everything off, and silently tried to think of more busy work. At At this point, I got pissed off. She made us follow her down four levels to some fancy kitchen area and she grabbed a giant containers of salt and pepper and there was still over 60 minutes left until noon she said we were to fill up all the individual salt and pepper shakers for every single vip suite we're talking about hundreds of shakers she condescendingly told us get to work and then disappeared back to the table where she picked back up where she left off her busy day of sitting around and texting. She did that the whole day, by the way. Just sat on a random misplaced bar stool, texting and scrolling through Facebook. I told the stoner girl I would take all the pepper shakers and she could take all the salt. Based on the first few shakers, I already knew she'd keep sneezing and stopping and she'd fuck everything up if she did the pepper. One of us played music from our phone and we finished filling all the shakers in about 15 minutes and we weren't even rushing. I don't remember what time it was, but it was less than 45 minutes until noon. I procured the manager's phone number and texted her. She preferred to text. I politely and professionally stated that all of the work I came in on my day off to do was now finished and that I had spent the rest of my time I had spent the rest of my time that day cleaning and filling salt and pepper shakers. I said, quote, "Ma'am, the work is complete and I have a 2-year-old son I'd really like to spend time with." Her reply, "You're staying until 12, right?" 
12 is what we agreed on? My response. Your email pleading for extra help stated, come in anytime, leave anytime. You said you'd appreciate even one hour. I came at eight and I finished everything by myself surprisingly early. Then you had someone else give me more work. It was really for us, but she gave me more work, which I then completed efficiently and earlier than expected. Then she had us fill salt and pepper shakers for some reason. So we finished that and it was nearing 1130 and I'd like to leave. It was my understanding that this was a volunteer shift. That was an exact quote of my text message. She replied almost instantly. Come by my office when you leave at 12. (laughs) I looked at my phone and I left. I shot a peace sign to the stoner girl and said bye, feigning that I would be back for my next shift. I was on the top floor and all the exits passed by the manager's offices. There were two elevators and a bunch of random flights of stairs. Fuck that. I didn't want to take the stairs because they always locked the stairwells like true idiots. So people, not me, would often unknowingly enter the stairs and get trapped for a period of time. Usually no more than 30 minutes. To be clear, this was a month before baseball season would begin. So I I decided to gamble on the elevator. I put my hood all the way up. I pulled my sleeves down a little and retracted my hands so that if anyone saw me rushing out of the main exit, the only exit preseason, there would be no discernible physical attribute to identify me aside from my height. I stood facing away from the security camera in the elevator and I bolted out as soon as the metal doors opened on the ground floor. My heart raced as I speed walked past all the big shots offices towards the door. I asked myself, what was I so nervous about? And once I felt the brisk early spring air touch my face as I left the building, I felt profoundly calm and I knew I deserved better than that job had to offer. May was when the nightmares seemed to end. In June, I realized there was no limit to overtime, so I regularly worked 65 hours per week. At this point, I had gone about a month with zero nightmares and little anxiety. The second day of July sucked. On the expressway, about three quarters of the way to work, my car began making crazy noises and let out a plume of white smoke from under the hood. I managed to coast to the right shoulder. I was extremely stressed out, but felt no anxiety and did not have any other type of panic-related symptoms. My grandmother picked me up and dropped me off at work. We had my car towed to a mechanic that my family trusts. I got a voicemail saying the entire engine was shot and that it would cost more to fix it than to just get a new car. More stress, still no anxiety. Three to four weeks later, I leased a new car. Five-speed manual transmission, just like I like. Enough about cars. In August or September, it was damn near impossible to find a normal sleep schedule. I needed melatonin or NyQuil to fall asleep, needed a shit ton of caffeine to wake up, and even more caffeine to stay awake. 
By the time I got home, I'd be wide awake and it would be impossible to sleep without any kind of sleep aid. October. I have found a sleep schedule I can tolerate for a while until they let me change my hours, hopefully to an afternoon shift rather than this overnight. My alarm is set to wake me up at 8.58 p.m. I wake up to the alarm and lay there silently and grumble because I feel exhausted and disoriented. My body thinks it's morning. I get up, quickly shower, and get dressed. I brush my teeth and comb my hair, drink some form of caffeine in the car on the way to work. I get to work with about 10 or 15 minutes extra so I can get situated without having to rush. That's pretty much everything important from autumn 2014 until now. The highlight reel. One thing I didn't mention, because I forgot until now, were my visits to the homeless shelter where my uncle works. I haven't been back there in five or six months. Too tired during the afternoon, unfortunately. But I'll go back ASAP. But yeah, the homeless really appreciated that I would come with my barber kit and give them free haircuts. 90% of them were humble and and polite, and I stayed late after I put away my barber stuff one day. My uncle asked me to translate for a gentleman who only spoke Spanish, and he was clearly sober. He was trying to fill out paperwork to enroll in adult night classes at the community college. So I gladly sat with him and assisted him in filling out all the English forms. A man who sees he's in a rough situation and actively seeks a positive change, a better outcome, that man deserves time and energy. That's not to say someone else unlike him doesn't deserve it. I just appreciate a person who says, hey world, this fucking sucks. What can I do to make it not suck anymore? Kind of a crude wording, but you get the point. I genuinely hope he's doing well, and I wish him success in his goal of becoming a registered nurse. October 13th, 2015, 12.49pm. What else contributed to my healing? When I was still working for that retail media store, I downloaded an app called Audible. The first book I listened to changed my mindset, but not all at once. It was called The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. I must have listened to it 30 times by spring. What a great book! I'm not trying to write a book review over here. All I'm saying is the wisdom of the Dalai Lama is unmatched by 99% of humans currently walking Earth. The Tibetan perspective on life and death as well as suffering and the overall nature of our existence is different than the traditional Western viewpoint. I think it was that book that inspired me to start meditating. I'd done it before, but not quite in a long time. In my documentary phase, I watched one called Ayahuasca, Vine of the Soul. It led me to read more about Ayahuasca, It is a 5,000-year-old tea. This ancient brew causes highly intense hallucinations, much more than any other hallucinogen known to man. The active ingredient is DMT, which some have called the spirit molecule. All humans carry DMT, 
in their pineal gland. Many believe that DMT being released during sleep is what causes dreams. Ayahuasca isn't a recreational type of thing. It looks like it actually sucks. You drink this tea, which takes 24 hours to brew, and you begin to cry. Then you are weeping, and then you puke. You puke and cry, and you suddenly trip your ass off for four to five hours. They say it cures depression, PTSD, bipolar, and even substance addictions. October 14th, 2015. 3.38 a.m. It's kind of weird. For the first time, I can talk and think about my traumatic events. Avoidance has always been my modus operandi. Not anymore. At this point, I still prefer not to waste a lot of time and energy concentrating on such negative things. But what the hell? It couldn't hurt to talk about it once in here. What happened to me? Why exactly was I so fucked up? Why did I experience severe PTSD symptoms for so long? My mom's ex-husband was a raging alcoholic, a blackout drunk with an inferiority complex and a brain the size of a pea. He was mentally unstable and abusive. He once attempted suicide in 2004 or 2005. He is a fucking maniac. I had nightmares, extremely vivid, terrifying dreams where I relived past instances of his many forms of abuse. The dreams were more emotionally torturous than they were visually. I almost always woke up shaking, heart racing, possibly crying. The part that really stuck with me about D was not at all the times he went after me in his boorish way. I think, for the most part, he never physically harmed me, although he did attempt to and would imply that he was about to. I did witness abuses on my mom and for either lack of ability or worse, lack of effort due to no confidence, I would fail to protect her. That's how I viewed what happened in real life. My mom took the worst of his abuses and I usually did my best to pretend it wasn't real. Or sometimes I would try to tell my grandma or my dad. October 29th, 2015, 2.19 a.m. I just want to write my thankfulness for the kindness of one of my colleagues and for the infinite mercy and generosity of God. I was hungry all day. I didn't eat a meal all day. By the time 2 a.m. hit, I was praying for food. God put it in my coworker's heart to offer me food. I was so thankful. This type of thing has happened to me many times. Alhamdulillah. October 23rd, 2015. Why am I so miserable today? I'm trying my hardest not to be, but this entire week has been extremely rough. Each day more emotionally taxing than the last. I hardly sleep anymore. My lack of sleep makes me irritable, anxious, and overall stressed out. It makes me unpleasant. 
I can feel my own energy sinking even lower into negativity. I feel like I'm on a tightrope high in the sky. Instead of balancing to avoid death, I'm doing my absolute best to balance to prevent anxiety. I do feel on edge, even anxious and riddled with self-doubt. However, I still have faith in God and in my inner strength. I trust that this feeling will go away. God, please, please free me from this feeling. It's hard to breathe. My chest is very tight and I suddenly feel my only response is the fight or flight thing. And right now, all I want to do is flight. I told my boss I was having a panic attack and he told me to go on break early. I went outside, took a walk in the cold air, and then I sat in my car and cried for like 10 minutes. Then, as I was about to text my coworker that today has been the worst day, I noticed it just past midnight. It was a new day. I said, let me exhale and leave that in yesterday. It's true, yesterday was pretty hard on me. That happens to everyone. It'll happen to me again one day, and that's okay. November 4th, 2015, 5.13 a.m. I adore the vibrant colors of fall. I never noticed until this year arrived. Yellow and gold and orange. My favorites are the maroon leaves because they remind me of the traditional robes worn by Buddhist monks. I even love the sound of the leaves going underneath the weight of my shoes as I walk through them. I think fall used to remind me of death. And it reminded me of going back to school, another year of not fitting in, bullying, and low self-esteem. I'm so thankful to be 26 and have just discovered this delightful season. Nature is inspiring. I wonder what other new things I'll fall in love with now that I have the giant black cloud of depression no longer looming above me. The other day, one of my friends told me that when we first met, I had nothing but sorrow and pain in my eyes. Now I'm told, my eyes display happiness and confidence. November 7th, 2015, 6.45 a.m. A day or two ago, my mom's fiancé was brought to the emergency room because he could not breathe. They immediately admitted him to the hospital. They told him and my mom that he has lung cancer. He's still in the hospital now. I'm going there in an hour or two when I get out of work. I did the same thing yesterday. I was able to lighten the mood. I told jokes, talked about non-medical things, talked about my son, work, the upcoming holiday season. I told him I've been watching Trailer Park Boys without him and shared funny moments and quotes from our favorite characters. Buddy is a really great guy who has always treated my mom like gold. He has, 
He is an excellent grandfather to my little boy. And he's just a laid-back, cool dude to to hang out with. I'll be praying for him. God willing, he can get well soon and live a long life so my mom and everybody won't be sad. Sunday, November 15th, 2015. 5.34 a.m. What a week. In this past... In this past week, so much stress should have sent me into a panic. But I handled everything with a surprising amount of calm. First, my paternal aunt died from lung cancer that same day they told new information to us the doctors provided buddy and my mom with the diagnosis of lung cancer it's late stage three or early stage four they also said that while it is inoperable radiation and or uh, and or chemotherapy may be an option I got turned down for a promotion at my job. It just bothered me because they didn't even interview me. I prepared so thoroughly. I put so much energy into getting ready and then they basically blew me off. It sucks because it was anticlimactic. I didn't fail. I didn't even have a fighting chance. The night before last, ISIS attacked Paris, France and killed about 130 people. A similar event occurred in Kenya, and I'm told another in Lebanon. Facebook is prompting everyone to change their profile to a watermark of the French flag. I honestly think it's cool to see bipartisan solidarity and international participation in support of these victims. While the French watermark is a kind gesture, it disappoints me because last year well over 1,000 civilians were killed and nobody even mentioned it, let alone changed any Facebook pictures to the Palestinian flag. Buddy was diagnosed with lung cancer in the fall of 2015. And by January 2016, I was weeping at his funeral. It happened faster than anyone could process. First, the diagnosis. Then he had pneumonia and was hospitalized over the holidays. Soon his chemotherapy weakened him so much that he couldn't talk and could hardly walk on his own. The determined, fearless look in his dark eyes had faded and all I could see was defeat. Cancer killed his spirit before it killed his body. Buddy was a strong man. He worked six or seven days a week, 12-hour days, all the way until his diagnosis. He was so intellectual, so well-read, so damn smart. Before we all met him, many of us, especially me, had preconceived notions that this southern man would arrive riding on a tractor singing country songs. He would have eventually earned our love and respect even if he was that way. But he wasn't. He was just a cool beach guy. He loved the Atlantic Ocean and took pride in his home state of North Carolina. 
He never missed watching a Tar Heels game. We knew Buddy would pass soon because the doctor told him not to bother going to chemo anymore. When he died, none of us were ready. My mom couldn't reach me by phone. She most likely buzzed my apartment door, but I didn't hear it because I was knocked out from all the cough syrup. In frantic desperation, she rang all the buzzers in my building until one of the neighbors let her inside. She knocked on my door and when I woke up, I already knew, but I wanted to be wrong. When I opened the door, she was there, barely composed, and I held her. She said she needed me to get dressed and join her. I met up with her downstairs. My grandma and my grandma had picked her up and driven her to my building. The three of us meandered the side streets of Charlotte and Greece until we parted ways at my mom and buddy's house. They had already taken his body away before my arrival. People called, visited, and reached out all day. Mom and I stayed close to Henry, her dog, and did our best to stay positive and God-focused. I offered to stay the night at my mom's instead of going home. My poor mother, I saw her physically sleep on the living room couch, but she gained zero rest that night. Occasionally, I'd wake her from the crinkle of my snack or the volume of the television, and she'd lightly bark at me, but I would pay it no mind. I kept telling myself, this is emergency mode. Grieve properly, but grieve once you know she's okay. Don't lose strength. She needs you right now. Be strong like Buddy. It's okay to hurt. Just hurt once you get home. All of my online social contacts seemed to fall asleep and I was left to my own thoughts in the still of the night. I imagined myself in a marathon, pictured the finish line and reminded myself to watch funny shows. As I uncomfortably sat there, I desperately wanted to go out for a walk in the cold, fresh air, to be alone under the orange glow of the streetlights, to have no one to worry about but I couldn't leave her. I didn't want to wake her up with the door and the dog, and I didn't want to take 10 minutes to explain why this would be helpful to me right now. Because it wasn't all about me. I wanted it to be about her. I was there for her. At 4 a.m., she screamed. She shot awake as if struck by a bolt of lightning and let out a bellow as loud as her lungs would allow. She cried for Buddy. She called for him and yelled, no, and yelled at the night in dissatisfaction. His death physically hurt her body, something I'd never known was possible. Empathy is real. Henry, the compassionate boxer dog, and I comforted her in the comforted her in the light of the muted TV screen. I don't believe any sleep was sought that night. Around 5 something a.m., she convinced me that she was stable and calm enough to be alone with Henry. So she dropped me at my studio apartment a mile away where I immediately pursued rest. 
that death fucked me up. I didn't know how to make it stop hurting. I worked as much overtime as I possibly could as a tribute to his work ethic. One pride point was when I put in over 100 hours during one seven-day work week. My inner drive at work grew as a tribute to him. The 100-hour check meant a lot to me because it was the first time, the first time I ever saw a comma in my after-taxes net pay. A few weeks later, we reorganized and we got a celebration of Buddy's life. A lot of people came out to show respect. When it came to be my turn to speak and say a mini speech for him, I couldn't. I mostly kept it together until my cousin's husband, who was more like an uncle to me, offered great words. And then all the tears came out in front of everyone. And I sat next to the speaker's wife and she consoled me. I sobbed into my hands, face down on the table. I tried to catch my breath and wipe my face so I could send Buddy off with some words and blessings. I felt brave enough to handle the public speaking, but my body could not stop trembling. There were no words good enough to cover all that I had to say. I deeply desired to speak, but the moment was over and the party moved on to the next thing. I felt so mad at myself, so disappointed, as if I shortchanged him. A few days before he died, I attempted to apologize for having been so rude to him in the past, but he wouldn't hear of it. He was forgiving and mature. He loved me and understood what caused my past behavior. His forgiveness has been a lasting gift that spared me additional worry. Despite that, I still sometimes feel guilty to this day that he was denied a chicken breast on my watch. Later in the winter of 2016, with backup from my crush, some peers, and my new mindset, I parlayed a part-time shadow with the help desk into a full-time position on that team. I had a new title with the same pay, and I was officially one step closer to management, which I made clear was a goal. And they didn't need to know I was after management for the money. I knew which leadership buzzwords they wanted to hear. I've always despised corporate jargon, but I gladly peppered it in for the higher-ups to take me seriously. And they did. With my mind clouded by grief, I failed to sustain the relationship with my crush. It was my own fault, purely due to my own unwillingness to commit, for which there was no rhyme or reason. We were never officially together, but the loss of her affection was devastating. I spent many sad lunch breaks listening to heartbreak songs in my car, feeling sorry for myself. 
sitting there wondering why I was too self-absorbed to take a chance and be vulnerable. Why did I let her get away? And now she hates my guts. In late May, I woke up to a group text with my cousins. Did you hear about Jay? I expected to find news about a broken leg or something. Never in a million years would I have guessed that he took his own life. Another devastating and tragic loss to my family in a short amount of time. My final memory of Jay was his selfless eulogy to Buddy. And I think of both of them every day. When I was a kid, Jay was still in college and sometimes we'd talk for hours about history. We used to talk about Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution. I still think of Jay whenever I see Mao's fam famous portrait. I tasked myself with learning from his suicide. My two biggest takeaways have been that if I were to kill myself, I would be choosing to harm my loved ones in a life-altering way. And I'm not saying that he consciously chose that, but this is my takeaway, having gone through a loved one who did that. My other lesson was simply how short life is. This caused me to reflect on impermanence. You don't need to be a Tibetan monk to benefit from that activity. I didn't see my mom very much after Buddy's funeral, and I really didn't see her often after Jay's. She was aloof, grieving in her own way. I felt I understood her heart. If she was safe, I planned to mind my business. I still felt her love because we'd text each other weekly updates with lots of with lots of X's and O's. I focused my energy on my career and my son. My broken heart and unstill mind caused me to ruin things with a beautiful Asian girl from my job who I who I developed feelings for. In June or July of 2016, I moved to my mom and buddy's house because my studio apartment was too hot and it felt impossible to sleep or even breathe. I left most of my belongings in the studio but kept my clothes at my mom's vacant place. She was too grief-stricken to be there, so my mom kept renting out her house, basically for me, until the lease ended in the fall. I kept my studio apartment up the road for the very same reason. In the fall, a distant cousin of mine left Florida to move back to Rochester. She got a lease for a two-bedroom apartment and offered for me to stay in exchange for half the rent. I moved a few weeks after she showed up in Rochester with nothing but $20 and a small suitcase of clothes. This 21-year-old, who I'd met briefly one time at my paternal grandmother's funeral, had completely fooled me and others into thinking that she was mature enough to move across the country. It turned out she didn't even have a job lined up as she claimed. What she had was a verbal commitment from her recently hired Starbucks supervisor in Florida 
to help transfer her to a Starbucks in Rochester. No follow-up ever occurred. No transfer was ever processed. It took about a month before she had her part-time Starbucks job back. By that time, I'd taken her to open interviews at my job, where I was a team leader. She got hired based on my referral. As far as rent, I consistently paid every single penny either early or on time, well before anything could be considered late. By the end of October, my money for November rent was in her hands. What happened next totally confused me, but more importantly, it could have ruined my life. She took my rent money and hopped on a train to Boston. Why Boston? To visit her friend who would she who she constantly would badmouth about and she would make fun of her for being addicted to heroin. And she abandoned her beloved dog in the apartment. The neighbors called the rental office multiple times to complain about the dog's incessant, anguished crying. We, meaning she, because I was not on any paperwork, ended up getting evicted. And I'm just glad that I had the foresight to avoid being attached to that lease agreement. I was never anything but an invited guest of hers. She told my father and others in my family blatant lies. One of the most laughable was that me being there and my long-term presence as an unofficial tenant was the sole root cause for the eviction. She foolishly left the eviction paperwork out in the open. So I took a picture of every single page. And all it said was failure to pay. That's the one and only thing, failure to pay rent. I took photos and spammed my dad with them. He said he believed me all along. This person wronged me once by taking my money on a vacation to Boston and then twice by falsely blaming me for her eviction. In the days that followed, I tried unsuccessfully to find a new home. My uncle and his wife saved me by inviting me into their Christian household. Were it not for them, I would have had to sleep in my car. Yes, there are homeless shelters, but I was not mentally ready to accept that yet. I lived there, basically in a finished attic bedroom, from Thanksgiving 2016 until the end of January 2017. Early February came and my mom worked out a deal with the landlord where I could move into the soon-to-be-vacant unit and I would be duplex neighbors with my mom. September 16th, 2016. Why did you die, Buddy Ray? I know it wasn't your choice. You only left because God called you home. He took you sooner rather than later. This is the mercy of God. Cousin, I don't get why you killed yourself, man. All you did was multiply your inner pain externally 
to all your many loved ones. I miss you, dude. I wish you didn't do that. I obviously still hurt, but the hurt now, today, is different. Apples to oranges, very different in comparison to the PTSD agony. One feeling is not worse or better, just vastly different. Fall 2016 Soliloquy It's been about a month since my promotion to team lead. I fought hard for that and it felt good to win one. Buddy Ray would be so proud if he could see me. I'm officially dating this girl, Vicky, from my job. I thought I lost my chance with her but we finally talked everything out and I'm scared but I'm trying this relationship thing. I told her I love her, and I mean it 100%. I've opened up to my girlfriend about my problematic anxiety. She shared with me that she's been dealing with the same affliction. We discussed mental health at length before one of us commented that medical marijuana seems to be gaining popularity as an alternative treatment. pretty girl made a phone call. We met up at my new apartment where I live with my cousin from Florida. A few short blocks away, we met up in a friend's driveway. She had lawn chairs out and a cigar rolled for us to try. Someone sparked and we passed it for three or four rotations before everyone tapped out. I was extremely fearful of this moment, be it due to drug war propaganda or simply a fear of the unknown. I knew my girl felt nervous and reluctant to try as well, but we kept an open mind and took a leap of faith. The three of us smoked that blunt in that urban driveway under the light polluted starless sky. It was absolutely nothing like Hollywood made it seem. I said, is this what I was afraid of the whole time? I was expecting to turn into a giggling doofus or to be riddled with an incurable case of the munchies, but it wasn't any of that. In fact, it didn't feel intoxicating at all. It felt like my mind was fully coherent, just calm. The absence of my constant state of dread was noticeable and felt so strange, but there was no time for a deep analysis. I wanted to be. That moment changed the course of my life. It was so important because for the very first time, I didn't have to believe on blind faith that an end to suffering was possible. I felt it. I did not for one moment believe cannabis to be a cure for anything. But I knew immediately that the herb had power which I originated from God This herb had the power to lift a cloud of doom from over my head just long enough for my five senses to experience something new. And for once I was able to take in fresh air without burdensome existential dread interrupting and cutting my breath short. 
On our short trip back to my apartment, we shared thoughts as if explorers trading stories from lost jungles. We agreed that if nothing else, cannabis has some healing properties and we were glad we took a chance at exploring them. February 5th, 2017, 11.43 p.m. I have been sick over the weekend and I'm starting to get worried. At first, I had a basic cold. It evolved into an upper respiratory, upper respiratory virus, similar in nature to strep throat, but not treatable with antibiotics. On Wednesday, I saw the doctor for a sore throat. They prescribed me cough syrup with codeine in it. Well, now it's Sunday. I missed four days of work last week because of this. My cold seems to be gone, but I can't fucking breathe. At night, it's the worst. I gasp, I choke, I feel like my lungs are weak and simply can't supply enough oxygen. February 17th. 2017. Today, I emailed a therapist that accepts my insurance. She works out of an office in my neighborhood in downtown Rochester. I now live in the historic South Wedge district in the upstairs apartment of a duplex, and my mom lives in the lower unit. Today was mega fucking anxiety. Last night at 2 a.m., I woke up from a terrifying dream where my mother and I were both in the backseat of a car returning home from a road trip, and she confessed to me that she had cancer. She was terminal, stage four, going to die soon. The doctor said chemotherapy could potentially elongate her life, and she told me she could not afford the treatment and knew that neither could I. The internal emotions that I felt were overwhelmingly sad. A foreign type of sadness I'd not been accustomed to. I awoke from this awful dream still feeling the exact feelings and wanting to go to the apartment below to check on my mom. My son was with me and woke up less than a minute after me and said, Daddy? And he climbed on top of my chest. He immediately fell back asleep. I was glad he could embrace me when I needed it most. It's our father-son connection. I love him unconditionally until the end of time and beyond. I wish Buddy Ray didn't die. Anxiety. Right now, I feel as though I'm entering a crisis that I'm not fully aware of yet. I don't know how much more I can talk about this right now. I'm gonna play my Nintendo Classic for a bit. At a certain point, this journal stopped containing 100% of the ugly truth. During late summer, autumn 2015, when I was working overnights, I intentionally abused cough syrup to hallucinate. I told myself the hallucinogenic effects was just an added bonus of me taking cough syrup to help me sleep. The first time I ever purposely did that was sometime in late 2014. I felt like time went by incredibly slow. I laid on my back on the couch looking upward in the dimly lit dining room of my apartment. 
and as I looked at the ceiling fan, I saw it begin to change speed and change direction. It went far away, and then closer to me. I had to close my eyes. I then saw geometric shapes and neon colors so bright that it felt blinding. I put my hood over my face while keeping my eyes open, sometimes with sunglasses on. It didn't feel like I was gazing into cloth, but rather outer space or a new universe before my very eyes. Nothing blocked my view for miles in all directions. Everything I saw was incredibly bright and it made me squint. I felt euphoric as time stood still. I was weightless. Gravity had lost its hold on me. The euphoria was amazing. I knew it wasn't that anything in my life had suddenly gotten better. No. Rather, the dextromethorphan caused my brain to create or release serotonin. My knowledge of the true origin of this did not affect my contentment. Life felt fantastic, and everything about it was so enjoyable. This occurred during a point in my life where I would regularly wake up in full tears from crying in my sleep. This was a very deep, prolonged, and severe depression. April 7, 2017, 11.03 p.m. PTSD is still a part of me. I can still feel many of the symptoms. The nightmares have all but ceased. PTSD is a motherfucker because I thought everything was better. I thought I was totally free. I had gone a year or more with very little anxiety, no depression symptoms to speak of. Over the past 9 or 10 months, the symptoms have crept back into my daily life. Everything except the nightmares, which I'm thankful for. The timeline of the depression and anxiety snowball effect went as follows. First, a family member died due to an illness in fall of 2015. Soon later, my aunt died due to lung cancer, fall of 2015. And then Buddy died due to lung cancer, January of 2016. Another family member died due to cancer in winter of 2016. And finally, my cousin committed suicide in late May 2016. I moved about four times due to changing circumstances from July 2016 to February 2017. Moving itself isn't that bad, but prolonged periods of time without that feeling of this is my fortress of solitude can take a lot out of a person, and it certainly did. Lately, I've been pretty fucking anxious. I missed work last Sunday. I called in because my anxiety was so bad. That happened another time in 2017, too, but that was closer to the start of the new year. And when I feel depressed, which is most days, I don't feel blue, nor do I feel kinda sad. I feel empty and dead. I feel alone in the depths of my own despair. I feel self-loathing. I feel a glaring lack of self-confidence. Occasionally, I might echo a phrase such as, I don't love myself, or I fucking hate myself. 
Of course, I do not remotely consider self-harm or suicide. The one time I did think that way, I called the suicide prevention hotline as I sobbed in agony at 4 a.m. That was in 2014 and was a side effect of coming down from antidepressants. Back to what I was saying, I still feel this PTSD. A few weeks ago, I was in a small store in downtown Rochester. Everything was quiet inside the establishment. Suddenly, I heard this sharp shrieking noise, and I kept hearing it. I couldn't tell if it was far away or if it was coming from a radio with low volume, but it wasn't anybody's phone. The shrieking and screaming continued and got louder, finally culminating in four highly intoxicated young men banging and pounding on the door to the business, and then walking away as if nothing had happened. I was alarmed. The loud banging scared the shit out of me. I believed myself to be in impending danger, even five minutes after it was over. That is called hypervigilance. I wanted this to be an inspirational project, a memoir of my non-traditional success story in freeing myself. In some ways, I do feel free. No medicine and no nightmares? That's huge. This crippling depression, this debilitating anxiety, I cannot seem to shake this shit no matter what I do, but I refuse to give up and I I vehemently refuse to treat this symptom with any more bullshit pills. My traumatic experience with my mom's ex-husband ended once and for all on January 1st, 2008. After that point, I should have healed properly and moved on but I didn't do that so here we are my hair is so long my beard is unkempt my mustache is even grown out which I never let happen I just stopped giving a shit I used to love visiting the barber shop and I liked the minor confidence boost that haircuts provided I I don't have any desire for face-to-face interactions. It gives me a great deal of uncertainty and creeping anxiety if I anticipate having to speak with strangers. It's not worth it. I don't like having to leave my little bubble of safety in times like these when I have anxiety. My home, my current apartment, it is my sanctuary and I feel eternally safe at home. I live alone. My son is over here three to four days per week. He's amazing. I love him so much. He makes me so proud. This isn't a book about him, but if it were, it would be a very happy book. April 9th, 2017. When I was a child, I didn't know about anxiety or understand it. I didn't hear the word until I was mature. I remember having panic episodes as a young child, as young as seven or eight. I always told my dear mom that I felt scared, but of course this was not the best description of my feeling, but fear was all I knew to say. Looking back, I was panicking due to an irrational feeling of imminent physical danger, and this still happens often. 
My mom always took great care of me and made me feel safe and normal. I woke up this morning feeling great, wide awake about 15 minutes before my alarm. I didn't need a drop of caffeine to feel awake. I was in a splendid mood. The warm weather today was a lovely surprise, a welcome change in sharp contrast to the two inches of snow we got three days ago. The point I'm trying to make is this morning was perfect and I felt happy. My positive aura didn't last long. It peaked around 11 a.m. and by 12.30 it was almost entirely gone. Here we are, 1.25 p.m. I'm on my lunch break and I'm back to being miserable. What happened, you ask? Nothing happened. Could this be physiological? I had enough energy, optimism, and positivity this morning to change the world if I'd tried. Now I'm secluded, by choice of course, alone in my car, ritualistically listening to Netflix shows on my phone for background noise. Suffering is the key theme. Perhaps I should listen to the art of happiness again. April 18th, 2017, 9.52 a.m. The sun is shining so brightly in my soul this morning. I feel incredibly optimistic and overjoyed. I woke up before my alarm clock, slept great, and I haven't had any caffeine today. May 16th, 2017. I don't feel like I'm really here right now. I don't feel like I'm in my body. I don't feel sad or happy or scared. I feel literally nothing at all. Not bad or good. I don't know what this is. And I'm completely sober, by the way. I've felt this way before. It's not often, but maybe once every other month. I am not on earth. I am not in this shell of a body. Am I Jacob? Is Jacob me? Am I present and was I ever present? I don't feel of this world. I don't know how to describe it. I'm just not in my body. Usually, a person can identify themselves by looking into a mirror or seeing a shadow behind them on the sidewalk. I see me. There I am. I saw my perfect reflection in the glass across from where I sat in the gym as I tried to make sense of this experience. I looked at what I know to be my body, what Jacob knows to be Jacob's body. I did not see me. I was not there. Summer 2017 Soliloquy My son spent every day with me while his mom went down to New Jersey, New York City area to prepare for the two of them to move down there. And she had a number of reasons for that move. 
I felt initially that the change would barely be noticeable because of naive discussions where it was preliminarily agreed that he would visit me an equal amount of time as when he lived in Rochester. During this summer, I invested every penny to make that a memorable and positive experience. When we went to the zoo, to the water park, to bounce houses and playgrounds, jungle gyms, and mini golf, I believe we went to every fun family activity in Western New York. In August, I achieved a promotion to manager that I'd once thought was impossible. I earned a new salary and a bigger desk, a small amount of influence and power over my tiny domain. I would have a team to manage and coach. I was proud of myself for continuing to push and grow in my career. Before my interview, I touched my hand on the Tar Heel tattoo and said prayers for Buddy in heaven. I got the job. I didn't have to worry about friends visiting my house with the power off. I didn't have to go to bed hungry or fish for, fish for bottles to return out of a commercial dumpster. I didn't need to do those old things to survive anymore. Things would be better for my son because of this promotion. I could count on having a semi-normal work schedule and the increased pay rate would allow me to buy him more toys. I was so proud to don the yellow lanyard that only managers can wear. On the last day of August, his last day here, my girl and I took him to as many fun activities as we could cram before sunset. At the end of the day, we brought him to McDonald's for a happy meal. And there in the parking lot, I broke down. I cried because it hit me that soon I'd come home from work and he wouldn't be sitting on the stoop waiting for me with my mom. I knew the world as I knew it was ending and he wouldn't be there like before. It hurt. I cried. I asked God to fix the situation so it doesn't hurt anymore. And I begged God for his will to be done, not mine. I even thought about this journal and I swore I'd never tell this part of the story because it would force me to admit just how deep it hurt to allow a distance between my prince and me. I attempted to bargain in my mind. I imagined bargaining God to take away my recent promotion and let my son stay with me instead. I was inconsolably broken, beyond devastated. And after my lady helped me breathe and calm down, I spoke directly to my son and told him, we only say see you soon. We never say goodbye. To ease the pain, my girlfriend generously booked us a weekend getaway immediately following my son's departure. She brought me to the Adirondack Mountains, a place she'd never been but knew how special it meant to me. She'd heard stories of my childhood camping trips and long-lost happy memories. She booked it, paid for it, and used her car to drive four-plus hours for us to get there. I never in my life had a friend or partner love me enough to put that level of effort into proactively saving me from getting caught up in my own thoughts. No one in my life ever bothered to go that far, to recognize and act on helping me avoid a downward spiral in my mental health. We had no agendas or plans. 
Just a weekend in the mountains with a nice hotel, free time and money in our pockets. She deferred to me as the tour guide. From my recommendation, we visited Whiteface Mountain, then later Gore Mountain, and we rode the enclosed gondolas to the tops of two stunning summits in different areas of the Adirondacks, one in the high peaks and the other in Keene Valley. I had the privilege of introducing my girl to majestic views at breathtaking heights. I proudly took her around short trails and showed her things I remembered from my last visit over a decade prior. In the mountains, I felt home and whole. In the Adirondacks, I was reminded of some of my happiest, freest moments, things from long before my earliest traumatic experience. I remembered playing hide and seek with my cousins and the time I leapt off a small cliff and ended up with a double puncture wound through, my, through the skin of my kneecap. I used to love telling that story as a kid. I felt tough showing my scar. I remember visiting Cranberry Lake with my dad and summiting Bear Mountain more than once with him as a child of a single digit age. Vicky loved that mountain more than I expected and we made a pact to return as soon as possible. Late Fall 2017 Soliloquy My girlfriend's family is in from out of town and she's staying with me in the upstairs of my duplex for the time being. August 20 excuse me August 12th 2017 8:09 p.m. My 4-year-old is my best friend. I'm filled with exuberance and joy when I am with him and I agonize over him when we're apart. His presence or lack thereof in my writing is not an indication of of not being previously connected to him. I chose to write about him in here as rarely as possible because I was documenting my journey of mental health and spirituality. I still intend to keep this journal focused on those themes. However, it is worth mentioning this child is my happiness. He is God's gift to me, pure and innocent. I am eternally grateful to have him as my son and to know him and to feel his love for me as his dad. It's the best feeling in the world. I would if I had to choose a life of poverty if a life of opulence and luxury meant not having him in it. It wouldn't be worth it whatsoever. His love is all I'll ever need. Thank you, son. August 13, 2017, 1:27 p.m. I'm at work. Can't seem to contain my anxiety. August 20, 2017. 3:50 p.m. Hard to breathe. Chest so tight. August 21st, 2017. 12:45 p.m. The solar eclipse is supposed to happen in about 30 minutes. I'm stuck at work as always. What a joy. 3:45 p.m. Solar eclipse was cool. It was a little cloudy out. I used a welding mask with sunglasses underneath to view it. I must have played the song Freebird a million times today.
September 3rd, 2017. This book started as a letter many years ago. The original reason I put the pen to the paper that day in 2011 was anxiety, a word I was not yet familiar with. The letter was meant to be therapeutic, one of the ones you write where you're deeply upset but you never send it. It was meant to be a letter, but it quickly turned into a daily thing. Here's what I'm emotionally devastated about today. The point is, I didn't know anyone would ever see this content. September 26, 2017. Today is Buddy Ray's birthday. Right now, I'm aboard a regional aircraft leaving Rochester International, headed to Jacksonville, Florida. To visit my dad. As I look out my window, I see the Finger Lakes. We're flying south. This is the first time in all my travels I've bothered to look out of the window after departing Rochester by air. Why am I going on this journey? Why has it taken me this long to make the time for writing? Right now, I see well over 10 giant windmills in the hilly distance to the east. I know that means we're over Cohocton, New York, which means we're currently near Springwater. October 17th, 2017, 4.27 p.m. The absolute best conversations are those with people who think differently but speak respectfully. October 18th, 2017, 1.30 p.m. On my way to Rochester's High Falls, I found myself waiting at an unusually long red light across from MCC's downtown campus. Peering at the school, about 30 feet from a bus stop, was a woman resting on a curb. I watched her pull out a narrow glass tube from her jacket pocket, examine it, and then smoke its contents. Unsurprisingly, her demeanor changed after exhaling an opaque white cloud. It was at that moment I was able to appreciate every aspect of my life, even times of suffering. October 24, 2017, 10.55 p.m. Today, I was told a situation was of too high importance for it to matter that I'm currently having painful anxiety. I was told, word for word, that I need to suck it up by a member of my family and non-verbally told that same thing by an additional member of my close, immediate family. You were completely useless during the trauma, the origin of my anxiety. I begged and screamed and asked for help and yet it had to go nuclear at the 11th hour, far beyond the threshold of psychological damage and you have the audacity to tell me that I need to suck it up regarding my anxiety issues that at times impede my ability to do everyday things? February 2nd, 2018, 6.38 p.m. As I fastened the metal piece through the tiny hole and felt it glide through the leather, I realized what I was doing. I didn't understand how I got there. I unbuckled the belt and took it off 
from around my neck. Today is not the day. I don't want it to ever be that day. I love my son and my lady more than I hate myself. How did I get here? Depression like you've never known. I honestly don't have an answer. I don't remember if I was wearing the belt or if I had to go find it. In either case, I'm confident I was in a dissociative state. I was not here at all. This happened earlier today, like two hours ago, maybe three. March 3rd, 2018, 8.52 p.m. I can feel my own evolution. It is a completely remarkable thing to behold. I'm aware of many parts of the world around me, and yet I know hopelessly little about existence. Maybe one day I'll be revered as a voice of wisdom and reason. Maybe one day I'll be that person. Can it be known? The universe in its entirety, can it be known? Can it be comprehended? Is anything real, and does the answer even matter? In the big picture, that is how I view everything nowadays. March 4th, 2018, 11.46 a.m. Here we go again. The excitement of travel never goes away. I'm on a commuter flight to JFK en route to Jacksonville, Florida to attend a leadership conference for work. To paraphrase a quote I recently discovered, the travel, the traveler sees what he sees. The tourist sees what he came to see. I love that. I fully believe travel to be a spiritual experience and necessary for growth. Solo travel can be a wonderful thing. Like Chris McCandless, a.k.a. Alexander Supertramp, once said, Happiness is only real when shared. June 4th, 2018. Crazy times lately. Tomorrow is my mom's birthday. I have to remember to get her something cool and write a letter to her. Recently, I've been suicidal. Now, that's a description of a state of mind and not actions taken. I have not harmed myself, nor have I tried, nor have I intended to try at a later time. My state of mind in those darkest of dark moments is pure hell, like the torturous place described by Dante. Yes, my depression gets that bad. I panic, I sob, I break things and scream and pound my fists on the ground or walls like a silverback gorilla. My body shakes and I sweat profusely. I sometimes vomit after it goes on for 10 minutes or longer. This only occurs twice a month at the very most. I'll pre-apologize for the vulgarity I'm about to do. I'm gonna write down a stream of consciousness. Fuck my job. This piece of shit is the worst aspect of my otherwise tolerable life. What bothers me are the so-called leaders at my level of management and the few above me in my center. Most of them are good people, 
but as leaders, they are complete failures. They alone kill my soul. Not the job description, not the benefits or the pay. The leaders are not engaged with their direct reports. Who can even blame them? Their senior managers don't take the time to look people in the eye while asking, how are you? They make unethical business decisions. They allow favoritism and encourage micromanagement. I'm working hard to be free. I do not want to work with this uncaring, fake, unknowledgeable assholes. Enough about that. June 5th, 2018. My mom's birthday. I got off work at 4.30 or 5 p.m. Home to the duplex by 5.15. I had some flowers and a card with a heartfelt note in it for mom. I was eager and excited to surprise her when she came home from work. She didn't come home at her usual time. I didn't want to crowd her, but I eventually reached out to see when she'd be home. She returned my call. The following is an excerpt from a private Facebook conversation after the event. Hi, mom talked to me today. She's drinking at bars six, seven days a week and I feel like I haven't seen her since spring of 2016 when she was still grieving, but healthy grieving. Her current boyfriend is not D, but he's also not great. I think he should go away. She is as much of a problem as he is, but they drink to a wildly unhealthy and volatile degree, and it is not only toxic, but scary. We both moved out in a huge rush because of this situation. I am sad because this isn't who she really is. I do think it's out of control. It's beyond depressing and disappointing to witness mom poison herself. On her birthday, June 5th, she called me happy crying from the bar. I bought her flowers and a card because I thought I'd see her after we both got off work. I was wrong. A big thud and bang at 10.30 p.m. They both stumbled into the downstairs front door shouting and yelling at each other. Vicky and I were able to surmise that either she dumped a beer on someone while cursing them out or she physically threw the beer at them. We weren't 100% clear. The two of them seemed genuinely afraid that the police would be at our house imminently. Her boyfriend became D that night. He demanded her keys over and over and over again, even though she already gave them to him. I was so confused, but genuinely concerned. I just hugged and held my mom in the hallway. And I thought she accidentally ran someone over in her car. I had no clue what was happening. I held her as tightly as I could as she loudly spat vicious words at all three of us. Her boyfriend threw the apartment door open and again demanded her keys and he accidentally hit her with the door so I barked at him and forced him back to the apartment. A tiny bit later, she tried to get into the van and drive away even though she could not stand or walk under her own power. She lied to my face and said she did not drink. She turned the car on while screaming at the top of her lungs while many neighbors peeked from their windows. 
I sprinted barefoot and jumped behind the car, yelling and pounding on the metal to make her stop. She did not immediately stop. Observers said she almost ran me over. I don't know. Three times that night, I carried her up a twisty flight of stairs. Two of those times, she fought me. Do you remember her complaining about torso or rib pain? Yeah, that was because I accidentally broke her ribs carrying her up the stairs to be safe and for her to calm down. This continued for hours and hours into the night. At one point, she was bawling her eyes out in the hallway. I thought we had a heart-to-heart. I asked her if she thinks she needs to stop drinking right away. She said yes and committed to stopping for good. Needless to say, the very next day and every subsequent day were spent at various bars, quote, getting something to eat for four hours and then coming home stupid-faced and reeking of alcohol. I really don't care if she drinks, but drinking to that level, especially with him, is not a great idea. She needs to move back to Greece, but I'm certain she doesn't see a way. He is a drunk idiot with a big mouth and no brain. In March, my mom asked him to stop drinking. She blamed their many previous blowout arguments on him. He accepted the blame, and while she was in Pennsylvania working, he was diligent and dedicated to not drink. The very first hour that she came home, she insisted on going to a bar. They both came back drunk. End of Facebook message. I was so hurt by the way that mom's birthday went and so angered over everyone's relaxed views towards alcohol that I wrote the following essay slash letter to her, which I never delivered and to my knowledge no one has ever seen. It is not debatable. Alcohol is scientifically proven to be an addictive substance that has the potential to cause harm on the human body. This is 100% confirmed fact. I am not anti-fun, anti-drinking, or anti-self-ownership. I am against alcohol apologism. I am against the culturally acceptable downplaying of its side effects. Alcohol does not need to be negative by comparison. It can stand out in an evaluation and will be observed as this from far. It will be a... Alcohol does not need to be negative by comparison. It can stand alone in an evaluation and it will be observed that it is far from a helpful substance. It is easily discovered that alcohol adds no value to the user. Emotional attachments to alcohol exist. They act as a thinly veiled desires to responsibly drink under a set of vague conditions like only at parties or special occasions or I only have this type of liquor or that type of alcohol. You're saying this and thinking this way for one reason, because you're not ready to part ways with it. Just because I appreciate the profound medical utility of something others use to recreational, others use recreationally, does not make me an evangelist for that organic plant matter. I am not a salesman for other vices simply because I am able to see the inexcusable damage caused by alcohol. There is a defensive argument that says it isn't alcohol. 
it is the overconsumption of alcohol that it's completely safe otherwise and harmless in moderation. A little-known drug fact about alcohol is the infamous hangover is actually nothing more than the alcohol leaving your body. It's your body experiencing withdrawals. Your body acts that way because it wants more alcohol and it isn't getting any. The only way to actually cure a hangover is to drink. This dispels the false argument that moderation is safe. But let me take it a step further. Fraternities, 21st birthdays, high school prom after parties, countless examples of young people dying from alcohol on their first time drinking. So claiming that alcohol is harmless in moderation is a comforting lie we tell ourselves to explain why it's healthy and sound to continue drinking in any way, shape, or form. Now apply that logic to any other Schedule II controlled substance, like cocaine, uh, I'll only do it at family parties, it won't ruin my life. Who really needs convincing? Is it the listener or the speaker? When people are toxic, we get rid of them entirely. When food gives us diarrhea and food poisoning, it is very easy for us to never eat hot dogs again. When our jobs cause us pain and suffering, we're quick to leave, especially when a better path presents itself. Why then can we not separate alcohol completely from our lives when its pattern of causing harm spans multiple decades? What is so sacred about it? Why does the ritual of social drinking supersede the desire to be liberated from the oppressive shackles of substance abuse? Why must rock bottom be reached before this is understood and acted upon? Is there a line in the sand for alcohol? What is the line in the sand? And if there is one, what does it specifically look like? How will we know it when we see it? What are some reasons that what has happened thus far does not meet the requirements? Some formulas. Life plus problem equals bad life. Life minus problem equals improved life. Life plus purpose minus problem equals happy life. To me, the problem could be anything. It doesn't have to be an addiction. It could be grief. It could be depression. The problem flourished because your purpose didn't. <laughs>